Hi, I'm Nylon, the Associate Artistic Director of the Drama League in New York City, and this week we're talking How We Work Now, a series of conversations focusing on the future of theater and the changes in how we're making and enjoying it. How We Work Now is a place for strategies, for brainstorming, for leaning into creativity and innovation, the things theater folks do best. For more episodes, just visit dramaleague.org and click on Digital Series or search for The Drama League wherever you find your podcast. And don't forget to like and subscribe. The Drama League is a not-for-profit home for stage directors and the audiences who enjoy their work on stage, in films, on television, and across the internet. During the pandemic, we're providing essential services to help directors and their families who are suffering economic and health struggles due to COVID-19. If you'd like to join us in this effort, just visit dramaleague.org and click donate or become a member. We love to have you as part of the Drama League family. Thanks for listening and now enjoy How We Work Now. I must say I'm overjoyed to be joined by the curators of Expand the Canon. We're here today with Hedgebake Ensemble founder and artistic director, Mary Candler. How are you doing, Mary? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. We are also here with Hedgepig Ensemble's Associate Artistic Director, Emily Lyon. Hey, Emily. Hey. We have performer and creator, Shannon Corinthian. Hey, Shannon. Hello. And we would like to recognize and give a shout out to Sky Pagan, who isn't able to be with us today, but um, is also one of the curators. So, hi, Sky from the digital world. <laughs> <laughs> in a rehearsal right now which is crazy to think about oh yeah very crazy to say that someone's rehearsing right now but yay yay rehearsal yay creativity so hey everybody how's everyone's day (laughs) you know we're gearing up for one of our reading series tonight so we're pretty excited Mm-hmm. Oh, let's definitely start with the plug. So what's the series happening tonight? Well, tonight, which is Tuesday the 29th, we've got a virtual reading of two one-act plays by Fumiko Enchi, a Japanese playwright. Um, and it's called A Hell of Her Own and Restless Night in Late Spring. So that's at 8 p.m. And I'm so thrilled to share it with the world. Since this will be released after that meeting, is there a way that they will be able to uh, click a link and watch? Um, it'll be up for 96 hours. So um, it kind of depends on when you're going to release this, but it will be online, let's think, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, through Saturday night at 8 p.m. So I'll just say no. <laughs> if you can't watch it, you will just have a little bit of FOMO, but um, all of these plays are accessible on our website, expandthecanon.com um, or hedgepigensemble.org slash expandthecanon. Um, and you can read those plays and imagine how excellent the performances were because they are or were or will be. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they will be. And we're going to definitely put those links um, in the description. Um, I'm going to begin by reading to the listeners um, your uh definition of expand the canon um which blew me out the water it says expand the canon is an annual curated list of excellent and producible classic plays by women and underrepresented genders both a celebration and a call to action expand the canon demands space in the classical canon for more diverse playwrights many of whom were under produced or utterly unproduced in their lifetimes 
We call upon our national and international theater community to expand its definition of classic theater and include this brilliant writers and artists in their production seasons, publications, classrooms, and beyond. That is such a call of war. <laughs> um, we are on the battlefield and I love it. I love it so, so much. Um, what made you all decide that this is the endeavor to do? Well, I guess we're crazy people and we thought, let's read every play in the world. We can do it. <laughs> but more, truly, more seriously, this comes from uh, Hedgepig's mission, truly. You know, we I founded this company eight years ago and uh, it's always been top of mind to do classics with a feminist lens. And we've been doing that a lot of different ways. You know, we hire female directors. Um, we look at... Um, plays that have women with a lot of agency in them. And we've been kind of contorting ourselves into pretzels to figure out the best feminist way to do the classics. And at one point it was like, wait a second, <laughs> why do we keep producing dead white men if we are a feminist theater company dedicated to intersectionality? And we kind of paused and looked at each other and we're like, mm, giant silence here. We didn't know any plays really. Um, that were considered classic and were by women, you know, maybe Afra Ben, but, you know, we were not always necessarily super jazzed about doing those plays right now in this moment. They didn't resonate with us. And then we took a big guess that there probably were women writing all along and that we would just have to do a lot of digging. And so we started digging and now we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of plays that are on our reading list. And really where we took the deep breath was like, all right, are we up for reading and curating and reading and curating? Um, and we said yes. And we found amazing people like Shannon and Skye who wanted to go on that journey with us. Um, so that's where that project came from. It was about us wanting to do plays that really served our mission. And then we thought if we are struggling to find those plays and we want to produce them, then others must be too. So let's also make this a resource. Let's also make this a call to action in a wider sense. And, you know, we were really inspired by the Kilroy's list, um, which is this, again, a list that is just saying, hey, you cannot deny that these women exist. Women writers exist. You need to be producing them and you don't have an excuse anymore um, for not doing that. And we're like, well, exactly what Mary said. Um, we need, A, where, what are these plays? And let's remove that excuse of, I don't know what they are. I don't know that they exist. I don't know where to find them. I don't know which are good. Um, so definitely that, that idea just, um, we were, so we were really inspired to do kind of a, a sister list. Um, and, ensure that these plays will actually get attention. It was so hard for us to find those plays and we wanted to make it absolutely easy for everyone else to do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I, I am actually having that visual happen right now in my head of you all sitting down going, what's gonna happen next season? And realizing that the list is all met <laughs> and looking at each other going, what are we doing? Um, and I love that reckoning of that. And I and, and there's so much to unpack with that. Um, how about this? Would 
everyone give me their personal definition of what a classic play is? <laughs> yes. And I have like so much baggage with this term. Um, <laughs> it is definitely, you know, as we put this list out there and we we're talking about classic plays by women, um, I would almost say aggressive responses about like, well, what do you think the canon is? Or excuse me, the classics are. And I, I have two kind of different ways to answer this. One is I often think that the way we define the classics says more about who we are than about the canon. So it might reflect our values and our, um, what we esteem um, and care for and often doesn't take into account the wide amount of plays that are out there in the world. That being said, we do have to kind of wrestle with what is a classic when we start talking about creating a, a list of the classics. So uh, we started out saying classics were plays that stood the test of time um, written before 1945. Now, stood the test of time takes us down a different rabbit hole of you can say that about Shakespeare because he's been revered and done for ages. For these women playwrights, often they were never put on stage or they were put on stage for but a moment and never given serious consideration. So they immediately fell out of favor. So it's kind of about reevaluating through, through a different lens of like, if we had our values today, would this have stood the test of time? So it's kind of like a backwards rigging of that. Um, Although just to throw also in had there, to be, what was that? There, just to throw in there, you know, even Shakespeare, there were, there was about a hundred years after he was writing that he wasn't heavily produced. So I, I just think it's interesting. I, I am uh, totally agreeing with you, Mary, on like, what are we, what do we choose to revere? Um, because again, he had a revival. Somebody else lifted him up and said, hmm, this guy. Mm. <laughs> Um, totally. Yeah. yeah. So that's my soapbox. It's, it's your definition is you, right? Shannon, what do you think? Yeah. Um, I totally agree. Sorry, I was collecting my thoughts. I think on the same um, on the same lines as Mary, I think, especially when we were creating this list, um, at least for me, when I was reading the plays, it's like, what play that we are reading and that we are talking about would still stand this test of time today? Like what play do I think could be produced um, 100 years ago today and 100 years from now? And I think that's to me what a classic is, regardless of if it had been produced and performed before we put it on this list, what can I see being done throughout history? Um, and that's how I'm reframing the classics for me, especially with all of these plays that have been kind of overlooked in history by women. Um, what place should have been produced 200, 100 years ago and what I hope is still produced in the times to come. That's beautiful, Shannon. Can I write that down and use it everywhere? You can. <laughs> you can. I don't know if snaps work over uh, podcasts. But I'm giving it <laughs> There's no shame in a good snap. <laughs> um, I, I, oh, first off, thank you all for sharing that. Um, but I think this is the perfect time to be in investigating, challenging, and redefining um, that terminology. Mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, we are seeing at large in the field right now. Um, this is a this this 
pandemic has given us this this breath um, to break. Um, and I and I've been leaning into the word break instead of like uh, uh, rest. Um, yeah, because I think we can like break the molds that we've had constrained for so long. And I think why uh, uh, the drama league is really interested in the work you're doing is because you're uh, you you're you're you've challenged and you're definitely breaking the definition that I think is rampant. And I, and I, and I think it starts in education. I mean, the word classic play was brought to me in middle school when I read Romeo and Juliet for the first time. Mm-hmm. And immediately these type of plays, this type of language becomes um, associated with that terminology. And then I only saw the same faces. Um, so I only saw uh, cisgendered white men who were dead, mm-hmm. <laughs> who didn't have actual pictures of themselves. It was just portraits everywhere. <laughs> um, and, I, and I think you all have, uh, um, what's radical is in the questioning, not even in the work you're doing, because you, you've, you've literally just provided, provided the resources for everybody. But, but what's radical is that you all have asked a question out loud. And um, I think that changes the room immediately. I'm so glad that you brought up education in this. Um, because when we think about who has traditionally been defining the classics, it very much, I think, comes from two sources. One is academia mm-hmm. and one is theater critics. So within the realm of education, which has predominantly been cis white men in charge and in power there there's been a you know using that value system creating what the classics are and also if you look around who theater critics are we're judging works on stages over time that's also been primarily cis white men and you know that that means that the classics have traditionally been defined by one value system Mm -hmm. and we're just bringing in a wider value system hopefully yeah I really you know, when I think about, because I'm not sure I fully answered the question, um, because I was just like co-signing you both, absolutely, and <laughs> we'll continue to do that. Um, but I think when I think classics, it's like, what plays do we embrace? What plays do we continually embrace? And that's, I think, what we're also asking people to do newly, is embrace these plays. Like, I think about, you know, a lot of people know to be or not to be, whether or not they've read Hamlet. Right. And I would love, you know, people to be dropping Fumiko Enchi references or like, haha, that one line from that Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz play that everyone knows. Um, but yeah, absolutely. It's about what are we what are we handing down? And that handing down is very much in education because, you know, Mary, a lot of things are when we've talked about this, it's like, well, who do we know from school? Um, I think all three of us went to theater school of some kind mm-hmm. um and i i was taught about afroben i was taught about sophie treadwell that's what i got um so if that's if that's who our education is if we're learning about two women in a sea of men that's what we're going to be taught to embrace that's what we're going to be taught to memorize and um it's it's just so it's so interesting that even the stories of women that are upheld are about men. Like yeah. we did, um, we did a production of Hedgepig produced uh, a production of Mary Stewart 
And I kept looking for a translation by a woman. It's about Queen Elizabeth and um, Mary Stuart. And there are these two incredibly powerful women. And they have these great points and great speeches. And yet I always felt like I was a little bit wrestling with the lens of the play, just because of who who translated it, who um, wrote the thing, whose view of women were engaging with. So there are so many women in classics um, and getting handed Romeo and Juliet and being like, well, this is what women have been like for hundreds of years. Well, okay, from someone's perspective, yes, sure. Um, but I think it's right. It's about that embrace. It's about that education. And what are we, what are we handing down newly to whoever's coming up, who's going to come up in 20 years, um, in 60 years, 100 years? that these are the plays that we start to pass down and say, like, we co-sign this. This is, these are great. These are valid. These are, these are how women have seen themselves and how we want to see women. So. Yeah. This makes me think back to my college days. Um, (laughs) And I, I had, I'm thankfully had a teacher who took, it was theater history class and she took the time. I think it was like a month of just learning female playwrights. And some of them are plays that we read. It was Rosvita, Sor Juana. I think I talked to you about this, Mary, um, a while back, but you know, nothing lasting. And we never, we did, we all had to choose a playwright and write something on them, but they were never performed in their main stages. They were never um, talked about past that point. And one thing I also found that was lacking in that class, um, you know, she was a great professor, but there was something lacking, which was African-American playwrights. And I had to seek that out. And I did a whole research for the summer and all that stuff, which was great. But having to sit through a semester of just, I think the only African-American playwright was Lorraine Hansberry because everyone knows Raisin in the Sun, but what about everyone else and all of the other people that we put on our list and that we read that just gets, you know, tossed under the rug or just forgotten and overlooked? And, you know, they contribute something to the classics as well. They contribute something to how women see themselves, um, especially when we talk about feminism and seeing it through a women's lens. It's not just the white woman's lens, it's um, the Japanese woman's lens with Fumika Enchi, and it's a black woman's lens with Alice Childress. And, you know, that's why I'm so glad that we got these authors on this list. Um, but yeah, going back to academia, they, there's definitely kind of a gatekeeping or, you know, mm-hmm. as much as you want to instruct your students, there's still something missing. I love that you shouted out how nothing was done on main stage because like there's two things that I want to holler about so loud right now one is you know when we find these amazing plays by women playwrights throughout history of like we are advocating to have them done on stages across the country around the world but like not on your second stage like put them on your main stage season because they are worthy absolutely worthy. And I'm going to collect my thoughts for half a second because I had another like, oh, I want to holler about this (laughs) thing, which was main stage. Oh, so the other thing that I hear a lot from producers around the country is it's really hard to produce unknown titles, especially if they're by unknown playwrights, you know, marketability, what have you. And I hear that. But I also hear that as an excuse not Mm -hmm. to change what audiences know. We have to start doing 
unknown plays to change the conversation right. and the audience is going to have to catch up and we have to trust that there's an audience out there for these plays if we market them right. It's not just because it's Hamlet that people are coming. There's other ends. We can also do House of Desires and be very skillful and bring in an audience for that. But the excuse, it's an unknown title by an unknown playwright is just not doing it for me. No, I can't it, handle it. It's, I can't. It's, it's a total cop-out. I mean, Tennessee William was unknown until he wasn't. Shakespeare was unknown until he wasn't. All of those male playwrights were unknown until they weren't. So all these women that have been writing for years, they're not unknown. They were produced. We just, well, we, we didn't do anything. But um, whoever was in charge just chose not to talk about them. So, and anyone, if there are any new playwrights, you know, they have to be put on stage for them to be known. And there is, like, in, especially in the American theater right now, like, and for, I don't know, the past fill-in-the-blank years, there's such a cachet and sort of a sexiness to new plays and telling new stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially in this moment, I think it's really important to to be listening to new voices and having, like, having these new writers come up, having these new conversations come up and changing our contemporary dialogue. And I think why that is so important is because we've been pretending that the legs that we've been standing on and that the world we need to change is this world of white men. Yeah. And that's, it's just not, I mean, it is accurate that that's what we've been embracing and it's inaccurate that that's all that's been going on. There's actually been such a legacy of, of female writers of women um like BIPOC writers women from other countries who are beautiful theater makers and thoughtful and insightful and easy to relate to hilarious like these these classic plays um that absolutely dance toe-to-toe with a Shakespeare a Moliere a Chekhov um and oftentimes are bringing up an entirely different conversation. Um, like her soul or anima is the only classic play I know of that is taking on a conversation around sexual assault um, mm-hmm. in, in a truly like me too relevant kind of way that is interrogating it, that is interrogating virginity as like, why is this even a conversation? Um, but I think it's so one of the reasons that we are are really changing right now is because we haven't, I don't want to say we haven't gotten it right in the past, but we haven't had a really, um, we haven't had a diverse or accurate representation of who has been creating in the past. And if we can change um, and shift our legacies, the legacies that we are honoring and appreciating of who has been writing, who has been successful in this business, um, whose stories do we care about? I think that will also really shift what conversations we are having and need to have today. This is, I always say good art feels like um, a very good meal. And I just want y'all to know I am, I am filling up. I, I am overjoyed. <laughs> The table looks just filled with all this good, good. <laughs> um, um, I, I, I just want to, um, I lift up everything you're saying, and I completely agree. And I think um, you have done a wonderful job in uh, naming this project, um, Expand the Canon, because it doesn't allow for, uh, 
you're, what you're asking for is that this becomes generational, that this becomes into the fold of how we pass down storytelling, of how we teach uh, new stories. Um, and, I, and I think that lesson is extremely important and shouldn't be looked over. Um, and calling it out is the, is, is, is the corrective um, step of action. Um, let's transition a little bit. Um, so you've realized this problem. Um, you, you, you have aligned it with your art making and practices. Um, and it's, it's now you have to curate the list. Can you walk us through a little bit about uh, what you found along the way were parameters um, 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 and how that process came to be? There was the way that we thought this was going to go and then the way that it did go. So um, we started off thinking, okay, just like the Kilroy's list, we're going to put a website for, excuse me, just like the Kilroy's list, we're going to put a form on our website where folks from all over the world can remember that one great play by a woman playwright that they're aware of, and they're gonna submit it to us, and then we're gonna collect this amazing list, and we'll use a reading committee of about 20 people to read all these plays and share their thoughts through a, a form that we created that really talked about accessibility, language, thematic um, items, and how relevant it was today. And then we will take the highly rated plays read them again and you know boil this down to a really diverse list of amazing plays well there is a little problem with that thought process because the issue that we are dealing with is that people don't know these plays so we went out asking people to talk about plays that they didn't know about so we didn't get a ton of responses to that kind of big call to action of like, tell us your favorite plays by women. It was like 10 of the same plays and a lot of radio silence. <laughs> it was like, upper band, and we were like, yeah, we know, cool. <laughs> um, but I would say that supercharged the mission of this. And it was like, whoa, truly, no one knows what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, there are also a couple databases out there, like History Matters, Back to the Future is a database. American Theater put out this huge long list of plays by women. And that was like the other extreme where it was like, here are hundreds of plays. And it was like, where do you start? And that's a huge amount of information. So we ended up just doing tons of research. And I would love to hear Shannon and Emily talk about the rabbit holes of internet searches and like footnotes and small references and an introduction to another play that we scrambled down. But holy smokes, we just ended up tumbling into the internet void and finding plays that we needed to read. And I'm not even really answering the question you asked, but I am talking about the <laughs> insanity of the process. Um, uh, but yeah, yeah, someone else take over from me. And I think you are answering, by the way. I think I think curating is a very interesting process. So this definitely feels like it's in full. Good, good. I'm glad I'm not just like driving down, you know, route one instead of route nine. <laughs> now I'm trying to think of the rabbit hole was a real, it was a real thing. It was like someone would say this one playwright and then it was about going to find their place. And we didn't realize how hard it would actually be to find their place. I think for me that was, because um, I did most play research of trying to find these titles and their texts and how we'd be able to read them because we had to all at one point if we liked them we had to make sure that we would all be able to read them and that was quite insane um, sorry 
Hashtag COVID. Yeah, hashtag like, COVID. We could all go to a library, but we also could only read the plays that we could get online, which makes like finding old plays Ugh. much more challenging. I mean, I was surprised at how many plays are actually on Google. Shameless plug for Google. I'm not being um, paid by them, <laughs> but they have a lot of they, they old texts. <laughs> um, yeah, they have a lot of old texts on there. I think I found bold, both bold strokes on there um, for myself to read. But yeah, just going down the rabbit hole of finding their place. I mean, you can find all of their titles. That was the most interesting thing is like you find these women authors and then you find all of their titles, but none of their texts are actually tangible. You could um, or you'd have one obscure play that that wasn't the title that we wanted to read because of some type of plot that was in it that was not relevant to what we wanted to do. But that was the one play that was in library. And you're like, that's not where, <laughs> that doesn't work for us. <laughs> the other thing that keeps coming up for me too in this process um, is, and Shannon, you can speak to this too, because um, we very deliberately wanted to make sure that we really were expanding the canon and that we're not just taking these plays from like, okay, old dead white dudes to old dead white dudes right. and women. Um, and there was a long time where we were reading um a lot of plays by black women and a lot of plays short plays um mm. and we i mean some of them are fantastic but we also very specifically didn't want to um to just be rehashing trauma so we that was definitely a a few rabbit holes we fell down of of every short play yeah <laughs> that we could find um do you want to talk a little bit about those? Because I know Shannon, you had done that research project on on some yes. of the fantastic plays. Yeah, I think I think I can. That was one of the most. Um, that was one of the the longest conversations I think we had on deciding what to put on the list. I think we went back and forth on that a lot, just because those plays are beautiful. But we are going through a pandemic. Um, the BLM movement is on its second or third wave. That's, um, you know, we're going through civil unrest in the U.S. And you see a lot of Black trauma on the news and it's already heavy. And we're reading these short, like five, seven pages play that are tearing at your heart and that are beautif beautifully written. But yeah, I it, there's a lot of content because a lot of women wrote um, during the 1920s and um the beginning of the century in the 20th century and what they wrote about was their experiences because that's all they could write about because that's what they were sharing um let me pause and frame this better this is something that I learned during my research is that black women were actually the um shoulders that black men stood on for the Harlem Renaissance. So a lot of women were actually leading the charge and starting the conversations and the black men were in conversation with them. And then the only names we remember are Langston Hughes, W.E.B. Du Bois, which great. I, you know, I obviously they furthered any type of discussion that was happening at the time, but you never talk about um, all of the other women that wrote, I mean, Georgia Douglas Johnson, you know, we found so many plays by her and they were all amazing. And that was one of the things that we, um, that was one of the, the, that were some of the plays that we were going back and forth on. Um, but yeah, all of those plays were about black trauma, black death, uh, black motherhood, um, black women in turn of the century, 20th century, um, you know, and it's all very hard. And 
it's what what do we choose of yes we're trying to be inclusive and we're trying to show um you know black experiences and people of color and their experiences in place through place but how much black trauma can we continue to put out when we're not trying to you know show that anymore we're trying to show black joy we're trying to just show the black experience as a whole the black experience isn't just trauma it's beauty it's joy it's you know just ev- like everybody else's experience so yeah this that was I really I just want to plug spunk real fast mm-hmm. because spunk by Zora Neale Hurston is on our list this year and talk about a joyous celebration if you don't have the chance to watch our virtual reading please read this beautiful play and beautiful and also like fantastic in in both literal and um descriptive words there is an entire scene where she's like the director's just got to figure this out and as a director (laughs) thank you and interesting um but yeah oh my god spunk is spunk is so fun and just like joyous yeah and it's one of those plays like Zora Neale Hurston isn't an author that's not well known she's a black author that's um studied at least I studied her in high school but her plays aren't done and that's something that made me sad well sad and hopeful while reading it it's like everybody is redoing Shakespeare uh you know with these big um theatrical uh tech pieces and all that stuff and Spunk is just sitting there (laughs) waiting to be done and it's this beautiful story and can have all of these things um but it's just not being done and I'm just like come on guys so that's what, another reason I'm so happy it's on the list, too. So that was definitely a huge rabbit hole we fell down. And then yeah. one rabbit hole I fell down was, like, finding um, – there are so few translated uh, – there are so few Asian plays that have been translated into English that are by women. Um, and I got my hands on this one book uh, that had a ton of footnotes, and I wrote down, like, okay, all of these titles, all of these titles – and had to like go chase down one of these. I had to basically <laughs> find scripts for these things. I was emailing professors and translators and um, just truly going down, going down the rabbit hole because I think it's so important. We have to to catch every corner of the world, um, and that there are fantastic voices. And I remember finally finding Restless Night. Uh, Restless Night and Late Spring by Fumiko Anchi and just feeling this breath of of like relief um, and joy because not only not only is it a, a beautiful play um, but also it's a play that especially in this moment is speaking so actively to to artists and to this dichotomy and this holy feel between art and politics um and it just was so it's really validating to know how human the human experience is and how um connected and just absolutely everywhere we're all like having the same conversation in so many different ways um so if if my real plug here is if anyone tr- wants to translate more plays, <laughs> in English, please do that. Um, and then send them to us. We would, I would love to read more. Um, that's definitely like such a missing, 
in in our theatrical world uh, right now in the American theater, um, and certainly what feels like a missing in in research. So shout out to Ayaka Kano for yeah. translating yeah. the plays that are on our list this year, and hoping we have more soon. Something I love that you just said, Emily, is speaking to the timeliness of that play. You know, we I spoke earlier about thinking of the classics as timeless, something that could, could be produced. Well, this is what Shannon said, not what I said. As Shannon said, <laughs> plays that could be produced 100 years ago or 100 years from now. But when we built this list, we were also being very thoughtful about what is producible right now. Mm-hmm. So while we believe these plays are timeless and can speak to audiences, you know, in the future and in the past, um, specifically, they are all relevant to the moment that we're living in. So put them on play- on stages now. Please put them on stages yes. this season, next se- season, as soon as stages open up. Like they are in conversation with what's happening in our world today. I, I just want you to know my hand went crazy while you all were talking. It was so many um, gems and, and thoughts that were uh, coming together from the information you were speaking to. Um, <sighs> one, I'm going to, I'm going to put this out into the universe and pray some wonderful grant person hears me. I think uh, getting playwrights to translate or adapt um, foreign plays um, and, so we can have them over here in our canon is a brilliant use of resources um, and a great way to expand the conversation with our international theater communities. Um, that's amazing. Um, also, we don't say Zora Neale Hurst's name enough. Um, uh-huh. That queen, uh, I'm happy that I, she also went to my alma mater at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, and I got to see some of her, uh, writings that are on display there and oh god she's a gift truly <laughs> the gift that give, keeps on giving um i i also want to um 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 speak to what i'm hearing about how you all paid a lot of attention and, and concern um about it um really being tangible for the modern day and the modern year um and I wonder if that's going to change over time. Because I also think something beautiful about a classic is that it's a period piece. Um, that it is that is a statement of a time that um, has passed. And something there's something beautiful about an audience reckoning with a then and um, connecting things to a now mm-hmm. and or then and being able to make that distinction. Because I think that's how we see our progression of humans, right? We watch these, we do it with film and watching a, a black and white film and you just go, gosh, we've come so far. You do it when you hear a song from your childhood to now, you're like, wow, so much has changed. And I think that's just a beautiful gift that I hope we continue to pass on. Um, Absolutely. If I can jump in. Please. You know, this is going to be an annual list and you know, when we picked nine plays for this year, that's not to say that these are like the only nine great plays by women playwrights over time. There were way too many plays that we loved uh-huh. that we didn't put on the list this year. We wanted it to be digestible. I imagine next year, well, I pray that next year that our world is in a different situation and that we will be speaking to different issues. So there were some plays that we were like, this is great and it is timeless and this is a conversation we're having now. But I bet we're still going to be having this conversation next year. So let's save it. So I do think that, you know, the list will evolve and we'll have a different feel to it every year as we kind of move on. 
through time. And also, I'm going to just plug something that Emily Lyons said to me once um, in talking about like why we do the classics uh, that has really stuck with me as a producer and artistic director. And that is this idea that sometimes, even if we're grappling with a similar issue from 200 years ago, if it's a really divisive and hard conversation to have today, by giving us a distance at that 200 years and seeing this problem play out in a different time, sometimes that removes the barriers and allows us to have a conversation because we've got a little bit of safety in the distance mm. and we're really ultimately working through an issue that's important today, but within a tiny safety bubble that allows us to get deeper than we might have otherwise. So I love, I love that sentiment and I love being able to you know, use the classics as a tool to talk about contemporary issues in a way that might help us progress and move forward. Absolutely. Uh, uh, always lift the words of Emily Lyon. I want to shift a little bit. Um, um, we're coming close on time, but um, as, as women, as female presenting bodies, as Femi, uh, working in the classics, I think that experience is, is um, one, I don't know because I am not of those things, um, but I, I do realize in my allyship that it, 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 it's a hard territory to walk. I mean, it's, I, I, what I love about the, the, the creation of this list and, and, and putting this list out and the fact that um, people have to read these plays and do their um, their own investigative work to understand these plays is that it doesn't have that that blanket colloquial uh, 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 business on it already. It's it's not everyone has their opinion of Hamlet already. It's not everyone says this is how the nunnery scene must be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Catherine the Great is only supposed to be played like this, and I think the classics have such a. Um, 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 uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Weight of everyone's opinions. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and I find really exciting. I don't know how you all feel about this and how you feel working in this, working in that, working in the field that, that as you are bringing new perspectives, new thoughts, especially in, in the representation of the stories and the, the women and the, the, the treatment of, of intimacy and violence, et cetera, on the stage, how are you navigating all of that? And maybe maybe some of your 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 hopes and dreams of, of these plays going and what those rehearsal rooms and entry talks are gonna be, hopefully. Um, I have I'm like bursting with thoughts. Um <laughs> I first off, absolutely I, I feel you with that sort of like layering and as a director having to wrestle with the layers of meaning and the conversation that is Hamlet the conversation that is Hamlet is so much more than the play and having directed that play, having to tell my cast, all right, first day rehearsal, throw out what you think you know about Hamlet. We're just going to be people. Um, But also wrestling with um, like having worked on Taming of the Shrew before and being like, okay, I'm a feminist, but I'm working on this play. How can I square this circle? And I am, you know, I think Mary mentioned before the pretzels that women have had to turn ourselves into to be feminist humans Mm -hmm. working in what have been classic plays. Um, And 
what I am dreaming of is a lot of different things. Um, but for example, bold stroke for a husband. I want to replace Taming of the Shrew forever and ever and ever and ever. Um, there are women who see in this play. It is taking on a similar conversation and like, and it's just absolutely blowing up the, well, why would a woman be like that? And instead of like doing crazy pretzels to make sense of men's view of us, um, I am so absolutely delighted that we can start having, um, we can blow those up and actually investigate them and like really dig into here are multiple women with agency with different points of view, explore them. Um, so I'm, I'm excited for that. I'm excited to not have to be, um, as a, as a woman director, um, standing for the voice that isn't in the room and trying to, trying to put something on stage that needs to be there in this contemporary moment and deserves to be there and is missing and having to do that with subtext and having to do that with blocking. Um, I am thrilled that you can just do that on the page with these plays. Um, and I hope that one day, like we are arguing about, well, no, no, but you can't do restless night and late spring like that. It's really meant to do, you know, it's meant to be done like this or like, well, we all know, you know, like people throwing out, well, Olivia in bold stroke, <laughs> you know, like that those are our references that instead of to be or not to be, it's like another or not even instead of, but in addition to um, that, there is these these other references, these other source materials. Um, so I'm really hoping that that kind of layered approach starts to add on because we've been doing these plays so much. Um, that's my my dream. But I, I think just to just to add these women to our vocabularies, both our emotional vocabularies, mm -hmm. as we like now can have a plurality of how women are presented, how they sound, what they do in classics, um, but also our literal vocabularies, our references, our, our frames of understanding. Um, so if if you're doing Taming of the Shrew out there, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna send you an email, and it's gonna be this. <laughs> um, thank you. Do that. Yeah, I totally agree. I think also made me working on this list and seeing the amount of work women have done made me excited again about theater not that I had lost any excitement because I love theater and I can't see myself doing anything else however I think especially as a black woman in America who is an American so that's another frame of my another lens that I'm seeing American theater through that there hasn't been or I haven't felt like there's been a lot of work for me to do it's always been okay well how you know, even I, I think I go back to my college years of when we were doing Shakespeare's or any other classical, classical, I put in quotes, texts, like, well, how do I fit in this picture? Um, I went to school in Orange County, so the school is already very white. So initially, the school's white. It's mostly, we're mostly women, but the play is mostly men. And I'm a black woman trying to audition for this play. You know, it's just super complicated. And seeing these texts and these women written from women of all backgrounds kind of made me excited again about like there are so many more stories to be told and so many more stories that I get to tell and be a part of, whether that's as a producer, director, or performer. Um, I, it, it made me hopeful for 
you know, that other young girl that sees theater that's like super excited, but, you know, hopefully, unlike me, she won't just see all these white men controlling the stage and she'll be like, look at all of this opportunity. And that fuels more creativity of like, I can do that too, whether it's writing or producing or directing or acting. Um, yeah, it was, it's, a, it's been a very uh, joyful and hopeful, hope building experience. I'm so inspired by everyone on this, in this conversation right now. Um, we're out of time. Um, but uh, I want to encourage everyone to head over to hedgebreakensemble.org, click expand the canon, sign up so you can stay in the know of when they're having um, readings of these amazing, amazing um, list of plays. Also, as I'm scrolling this website, um brilliant that you, you can purchase a translation of the play you can download the script i see that you all are even doing the work of suggested cuts of the script i mean you are putting it on a silver platter with a candlelight dinner and it's going <laughs> you have no reason not to produce these plays and I, I thank you so so much for that work also please remember to uh, donate to Hedgepig Ensemble Theater. It's on their website, um, hedgepigensembletheater.org, I believe. And you just click on support and there's donate down there because they're doing amazing work and they're continuing to do amazing work. So please, if you have any second of your time or any few dollars you want to spare, send them their way. Mary, Shannon, and Emily, thank you so, so much for uh, joining us for this episode. Uh, you all have a lovely day and keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. You as well. I will. Bye. Bye. Bye.